0: Capital and the allowance for credit losses and opportunity exist to level the playing field among international banks We are quickly approaching the end of the comment period for the notice of proposed rulemaking, NPR, regarding PECL transition While the NPR answers many transition questions it does not address the current unlevel playing field. Today's different measurement approaches for banks' allowance for credit losses and their corresponding impact on regulatory capital measurement rules create a competitive disadvantage for U.S. banks. Creating a level playing field among international banks is a hallmark goal of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision As reported recently, Federal Reserve Governor Randall Quarles renewed the U.S.'s commitment to Basel noting the benefits of a level playing field. One implementing the Basel Accords in a manner that creates a level playing field is often difficult. Achieving a level playing field regarding capital measurement levels is even more elusive given the impact of disparate methods for measuring credit losses for financial statement purposes. Unfortunately, today's accounting differences universally disadvantage U.S. banks because U.S. accounting principles for measuring the allowance for credit losses, by design, result in higher amounts than their international peers. Such differences are not fully reflected in the regulatory capital rule. Our capital rule should be designed to fully and fairly address the differences in measuring the allowance for credit losses and to measure the combined loss absorption capacity of the allowance for credit losses and capital consistently across the globe. Today, we lack this consistency but correcting this inconsistency is within our reach. Today. The consideration of the allowance for credit losses for regulatory capital measurement purposes in the U.S. uses one of two approaches. Under the U.S. standardized approach (SA), bank-defined general reserves are added to tier two capital, not tier one, subject to an arbitrary numerical cap that does not consider a baseline ECL measurement. Under the internal ratings-based (IRB) approach, the allowance treatment is asymmetrical. That is. If the allowance for credit losses calculated under applicable accounting principles is less than the regulatory one-year expected loss, the shortfall is deducted from Sit 1 capital, creating a capital floor. Alternatively, if the allowance for credit losses calculated under applicable accounting principles exceeds the regulatory one-year expected loss, the excess is added to Tier 2, again subject to an arbitrary cap. For SA banks, There is no explicit adjustment mechanism for allowance shortages when compared to a regulatory one-year expected loss. The current regulatory rules are asymmetrical for IRB measurement purposes and, as such, don't appropriately capture the true loss absorption capacity of the allowance for credit losses if a bank's allowance for credit losses exceeds regulatory one-year ECL. For SA banks, There's no measurement mechanism to assess the comparison to a regulatory one-year the Basel II capital framework for reflecting the impact of the allowance for credit losses codified the concept that the allowance for credit losses should be sufficient to cover expected credit losses, ECL, and capital should be sufficient to cover unexpected credit losses, UCL. Additionally, the Basel efforts to improve the quality of capital after the Great Recession included the introduction of the Common Equity Tier 1, Set 1 definition as basel rightly acknowledged set one is the primary focus of investors and regulators alike when assessing a bank's capital adequacy both the capital framework and the set one definition are the very bedrock of today's international capital regime and any effort to level the current unlevel playing field should be aligned with these two principles beginning almost a decade ago the financial accounting standards board fosb and the international accounting standards board isb began a journey to rewrite their respective accounting principles for measuring the allowance for credit losses. During their independent processes, the FOSB and IASP had joined forces around one solution only to diverge in the final lap, which resulted in the issuance of two appreciably different approaches for measuring expected credit losses. The differences between FOSB's current expected credit losses CECL, and IASP's three-stage credit model (IFRS 9) did not neutralize the current disadvantage for U.S. banks. Rather, their very different designs widen the gap between the allowance measurement approaches. In fact, on average, 90% of a bank's loan portfolio's estimated credit losses are measured using meaningfully different principles, lifetime ECL under Keckla and one-year ECL under IFRS 9. Expected Loss Amount For IRB banks, the comparison of a bank's allowance for credit losses to a regulatory one-year ECL appropriately treats a shortage as a deduction from SIT one but any excess is an add-back to Tier 2 not SIT one This asymmetrical approach ignores the extra loss absorption capacity in the SIT one ratio and is, in effect, trapped capital for the important SET1 capital ratio. By appropriately recognizing the trapped capital embedded in today's capital regime, the true loss absorption capacity can be reported fairly. To frame the current playing field, none of the US IRB traditional commercial banks have a capital deduction from SIT 1 for an allowance for credit losses shortfall as calculated under the existing incurred loss model. Under Keckel, this trapped capital increases. Conversely, many international banks do have a deduction for a shortfall even after adopting IFRS9. Importantly, The impact of the asymmetrical treatment of the allowance for credit losses in capital measurement also must be addressed within the regulatory stress-testing regime. Simply stated, the impact of the asymmetrical treatment will create its largest competitive disadvantage for U.S. banks in the stress-testing capital assessment process. The Basel's October 2016 discussion paper, Regulatory Treatment of Accounting Provisions, discussed, but did not solve the disparate capital impacts of measuring the allowance for credit losses under KECLA and IFRS 9 principles. However, the discussion paper did introduce a new capital concept, a standardized regulatory ECL that could serve as the foundation to level the playing field regarding the interplay between measuring capital and allowance for credit losses. 2. One approach to level the playing field could be accomplished through two changes to the existing capital framework. For the IRB approach to capital measurement. Delete the provisions pertaining to the Capital IV deduction, replacing it with symmetrical language. Simply, when comparing the regulatory one-year L loss estimates to the allowance for credit losses calculated under respective accounting principles, shortfalls would be deducted from SIT-1 and the excesses would be added to SIT-1 capital. This change to the IRB approach would have the effect of measuring capital levels similarly regardless of whether an institution's accounting principles approximated ECL or not. To level the playing field under the standardized approach to capital measurement, a standardized regulatory ECL for each risk-weighted asset category could be developed. The development of a standardized ECL is not without a noteworthy effort but certainly within reach as bank regulators have massive amounts of information subject to their review and approval. A standardized ECL could be developed using information supplied by the existing IRB banks Basel II models and data as well as information supplied as part of the comprehensive capital analysis review modeling efforts. Standardized ECL should be subject to annual updates reflecting changing economic outlooks that generally would correlate to Keckel's changing reasonable and supportable forecasts. These changes would create symmetry in the treatment of the allowance for loan losses for capital purposes. Adapting the concepts of this symmetrical regulatory and standardized L approach also could be considered for inclusion in the stress testing measurement regime. Understanding that thoughtful rulemaking requires time, an immediate, temporary step should be considered as well. To better level the playing field today, the numerical cap on the Tier 2 Capital Ratio could be eliminated. While this will not level the unlevel playing field, Eliminating the caps will allow banks to better plan their capital management strategies to minimize the cost of the transition to Keckle prior to a long-term solution. In summary, there's an opportunity to take an important step to level the playing field regarding the interplay of the measurement of the allowance for credit losses and capital. By eliminating the arbitrary distinction between the loss absorption capacity of the allowance for credit losses and set one capital included in today's capital framework financial reporting by banks regarding their true loss absorption capability will be more valuable to both regulators and investors furthermore even if the u.s acts unilaterally large international banks would not be disadvantaged unless and until their allowance for credit losses exceeds their regulatory one-year ecl In commenting on the current NPR, banks have an opportunity to suggest alternatives, which could include the two-step approach discussed, that would level the playing field regarding the disparate measurement approaches for the allowance for credit losses and their effect on capital measurement and capital stress testing.
1: Perfection of Security Interests in United States Federal Income Tax Refunds From time to time, businesses anticipate receiving a large federal income tax refund. When such a situation arises, there may be a desire to borrow against the proposed refund in order to access the anticipated funds more quickly than they would otherwise be available. Secured lenders may also wish to perfect a security interest in future federal income tax refunds to further collateralize existing loans secured by all assets of a borrower. Both sides to a loan transaction may therefore be interested in the method to create and perfect a security interest in a Federal Income Tax Refund. Execution of Security Agreement Describing the Collateral Article 9 of the Uniform Commercial Code governs security interests in most types of personal property. Because Article 9 does not expressly exclude Federal Income Tax Refunds from its scope, the grant of a security interest in a Federal Income Tax Refund is subject to the provisions of Article 9, Dell Code An. Tit. 6, section 9 to 109a. Because no section of Article 9 expressly discusses federal income tax refunds, such refunds are deemed to be general intangibles. See Dell Code Ann. Tit. 6, section 9 to 102a, 42. To create a security interest in a general intangible such as a federal income tax refund, a borrower must grant a lender a security interest through a security agreement or similar instrument. Under Dell Code Ann. Tit. 6 section 9 to 203 a security interest is enforceable with respect to specific collateral against the borrower and third parties when a value has been given i e a loan has been made b the borrower has rights in the collateral or the power to transfer the collateral and copyright the borrower has executed a security agreement or similar instrument that describes the collateral the security agreement and the ucc1 financing statement to be filed in connection with it must describe the collateral in reasonable detail. Dell Code N Tit Six Section Nine to One Hundred Eight A. Though a description such as all general intangibles is likely sufficient, a reference to the specific federal income tax refund in question, or at least a reference to all federal income tax refunds, might be preferable for both the borrower and the lender. Execution of IRS and DOT forms. The execution and delivery of a security agreement coupled with the filing of a financing statement creates and perfects a lender's security interest in many types of personal property. In the case of a federal income tax refund, however, additional steps are necessary to allow the lender to obtain payment of the federal income tax refund directly from the IRS. In addition to the security agreement discussed above in the UCC-1 financing statement described below, a lender should also prepare and have the borrower execute the following IRS forms, a. Form 2848 Power of Attorney, Form 2848, and B. Form 8302 Electronic Deposit of Tax Refund of $1 million or more, Form 8302. Form 2848 allows an individual, other than the borrower, to obtain the Federal Income Tax Refund on behalf of the borrower. Part 1 section 6 of form 2848 requires the name of an authorized representative who will receive the federal income tax refund instead of the borrower form 2848 does not by itself authorize the authorized representative to endorse or cash the federal income tax refund that requires an additional dot form described below for purposes of preparing form 2848 the person named as the authorized representative must either be a an attorney b a certified public accountant or copyright an enrolled agent as defined in treasury department circular no 230. in order for the irs to process form 2848 quickly the person listed as the authorized representative should be an individual that has already received what is known as a centralized authorization file or caf number from the irs if there is no such person the IRS will assign a CAF number to the individual listed as the authorized representative. Form 2848 should be faxed to the appropriate CAF Service Center. In cases where the lender expects that the federal income tax refund will equal $1 million or, or more, the lender should require the borrower to execute a Form 8302 authorizing the IRS to wire the proceeds of the federal income tax refund to an account maintained by the lender for the benefit of the borrower i.e an account for the borrower that is located at the lender's financial institution. Form 8302 should be filed with the borrower's tax return, if possible. Otherwise, Form 8302 should be mailed to the same IRS address where the borrower files its annual tax return. In addition to the IRS forms referenced above, the borrower must also execute the following dot forms a form 235 resolution by corporation conferring authority upon an officer to execute a power of attorney for the collection of checks drawn on the United States Treasury form 235 and b, form 234 general power of attorney for the collection of checks drawn on the United States Treasury form 234. The dot forms authorize the lender to endorse the checks. Or in the case of a wire transfer, to ultimately deposit the funds in an account for the benefit of the lender. Filing a UCC 1 Financing Statement. To perfect a validly created security interest in a federal income tax return, a lender must file a UCC 1 Financing Statement using the description of the collateral contained in the security agreement in the appropriate filing office under the UCC. Dell. Code Ann. Tit. 6, Section 9 310A. In most cases where a lender is filing against an entity borrower, that financing statement should be filed in the Office of the Secretary of State of the Borrower's State of Incorporation. Del. Code An. Tit. 6, Section 9-307-E. Lenders should be aware that following the IRS and DOT procedures outlined in Section 2, above, will not absolutely guarantee that the lender will receive the borrower's federal income tax refund directly from the IRS. First, Lenders should be aware that the IRS has not always honored Form 8302 and has in some instances mailed checks despite receiving a Form 8302. Second, a lender must keep in mind that a taxpayer has the right to revoke any of the above-referenced IRS and DOT forms. While not a perfect solution to the problem, the loan documents related to the loan secured by the federal income tax refund should prohibit the borrower from revoking any of the IRS or DOT forms and should make any such revocation an event of default. The loan documents should also grant the lender a power of attorney to prepare and submit such forms if and to the extent needed as a result of such revocation, though it is not entirely clear that the IRS or DOT would accept a form executed on behalf of a taxpayer by a power of attorney. Third. A lender should keep in mind that the IRS has the right to use all or part of a taxpayer's federal income tax refund to offset a prior outstanding balance. Therefore, before making a loan secured by a federal income tax refund, a lender should obtain some familiarity with its borrower's prior tax filings and situation to confirm that no outstanding amounts are owed to the IRS at the time of the loan and that its borrower is not under an active audit at the time of making the loan. Mr. Strain and Mr. Flock are attorneys in our Memphis office.
2: February 2, 2018 Foster v. Deutsche Bank Nat, Trust Co. 848F, 3D-403, Court of Appeals, 5th Circuit 2017-848F, 3D-403, 2017, Regina Howell Foster, Plaintiff Appellant V. Deutsche Bank National Trust Company as Trustee Aquan Loan Servicing, L.L.C. Semicolon Power Default Services Defendants Appellees No. 16-11045 Summary Calendar United States Court of Appeals Fifth Circuit filed February 8, 2017, 404 x 404 appeal from the United States District Court for the Northern District of Texas, Regina Knuckle Howell Foster, pro se, Richard Dwayne Danner, Litigation Counsel, Emily G. Stroop, McGlinchey Stafford, P. L. L. C., Dallas, Texas, for defendants appellees, before Jolly, Smith and Graves, Circuit Judges, per curiam, This appeal concerns an attempted mortgage foreclosure sale of property located in Grand Prairie, Texas, by Deutsche Bank National Trust Company, Deutsche Bank, Aquen Loan Servicing, LLC, Aquen, and Power Default Services, Power Default. Regina Foster appeals the district court's denial of her motion for remand based on its finding that Power Default, a non-diverse defendant and substitute trustee for the attempted foreclosure, was improperly joined in the proceeding because the foreclosure did not take place. Foster also appeals the district court's grant of summary judgment in favor of the defendant's appellees. Finding no error, we affirm. I. In September 2004, Regina Foster's then-husband, Carlos Foster, executed a promissory note to finance the purchase of a house in Grand Prairie, Texas. Regina Foster was not listed as an obligor on the promissory note. She is, however, listed as a co-borrower with Carlos on a deed of trust, which was executed on the same day as the promissory note. Regina later filed for divorce. During the divorce proceedings, The state court issued a temporary order awarding exclusive use of the Grand Prairie property to Regina. Carlos defaulted on the loan and, after receiving notification, failed to cure the default. In 2014, Power Default sent a notice of acceleration and notice of substitute trustee sale to the Grand Prairie home address where Regina received the notices. The trustee sale notice listed Aquin as the mortgage servicer and Deutsche Bank as the mortgagee. Power default was the substitute trustee. The foreclosure sale was scheduled for May 6, 2014. On May 5, 2014, Regina Foster filed her original petition in the Judicial District Court in Tarrant County, Texas, alleging wrongful foreclosure and requesting a temporary restraining order and injunctive relief and, in the alternative, a reformation of the deed of trust. She also alleged that she did not receive proper notice of the foreclosure sale and that she was not given an opportunity to cure the default. The state court then issued a temporary restraining order, putting a halt to the foreclosure sale. Aquen did not pursue the foreclosure sale on May 6, 2014. Defendants Deutsche Bank and Aquen removed the case to federal court on the basis of diversity jurisdiction, notwithstanding Power Default's involvement as a non-diverse defendant. In their notice of removal, Deutsche Bank and Aquin argued that 405 times 405 Power Default was improperly joined for the sole purpose of defeating diversity. The federal district court concluded that removal was proper and dismissed all claims against Power Default with prejudice. One. Then, in February 2016. The District Court granted summary judgment in favor of defendants Deutsche Bank and Aquen and dismissed with prejudice the claims in Foster's second amended petition, including a claim of attempt to wrongfully foreclose on the property, a claim that the defendants violated Texas Property Code section 51.002b 2 a claim that the deed of trust failed to create a valid lien upon the property a request for permanent injunctive relief and a request for reformation of the deed of trust the district court observed that it was undisputed that no foreclosure sale had taken place and that Foster still resided on the property because no foreclosure occurred the district court rejected Foster's claims for attempted wrongful foreclosure and violation of Section 51.002b. Further, the court found that the reasons Foster provided to support her invalid lien claim that her name was misspelled as Reben Howell Foster on the deed of trust and that the document number was incorrectly given as Dallas County Document No. 3,088,999 on the notice of substitute trustee sale, did not support a finding that these discrepancies have caused her any confusion or harm, because Foster's substantive claims failed on the merits. The district court denied her request for a permanent injunction foster's request for reformation of the deed of trust was likewise denied because she failed to demonstrate why such reformation was necessary foster then filed a motion for reconsideration and in the alternative urged the district court to refer her case to the bankruptcy court the court reasoned that foster's legal claims arose after she filed for chapter 7 bankruptcy in 2012 and therefore were not part of the bankruptcy estate thus there was no basis on which to refer the case to the bankruptcy court the district court denied both requests foster timely appealed to we review a district court's denial of a motion to remand de novo applying the same standard as the district court allen B. and h oil and gas company 63 f 3d 1326 1336 5th Sir, 1995. Grants or denials of summary judgment likewise received de novo review. Lemaire v. Louisiana Dept of Trans P. and Dev. 480 F. 3D 383, 386, 5th Sir, 2007. Summary judgment is appropriate when there is no genuine dispute 406 times 406 as to any material fact and the movement is entitled to judgment as a matter of law. Fed. R. Civ. P. 56A. 3. Foster challenges the district court's denial of her motion to remand and its improper jointer finding, asserting that she had a possibility of recovery against power to fault as a substitute trustee under Texas property law. The district court found that the defendants satisfied their burden of showing improper joinder. Improper joinder can be established by the showing of either, 1. actual fraud in the pleading of jurisdictional facts, or, 2. Inability of the plaintiff to establish a cause of action against the non-diverse party in state court, Foster v. Deutsche Bank National Trust Company, No. 414 Cv 436 Y, 2014 WL 12,591,926, at 2, N. D. Tex, August, 22, 2014, quoting Smallwood v. Ill. Sent, R. Company, 385 F. 3d 568, 572 73, 5th Sir, 2004, on Bank. In its analysis, the District Court noted that power default is listed in Foster's amended petition solely in the context of its role as substitute trustee. A substitute trustee has a duty under the Deed of Trust to act with absolute impartiality and fairness to the grantor in performing the powers vested in him by the Deed of Trust id quoting hammonds v Holmes, 559s w 2d 345 347 tex 1977 the court observed that breach of a trustee's duty does not constitute an independent tort rather it yields a cause of action for wrongful foreclosure id citing allied capital corporation v cravens 67s w 3d 486 492 tex app 2002 marsh b wells fargo bank n a 760 f sup 2d 701 708 n d tex 2011 a claim of wrongful foreclosure cannot succeed however when no foreclosure has occurred see marsh 760 f Sub 2d at 708 the court concluded that here Foster has no wrongful foreclosure claim against Power Default absent an actual foreclosure. Because she would have been unable to assert a cause of action against Power Default in state court, the court found that joinder of Power Default as a defendant was improper. We agree with the district court's analysis and conclusion denying Foster's motion to remand the case to state court. Foster also challenges the district court's grant of summary judgment in favor of the defendants. The district court found that Foster's wrongful foreclosure and statutory claims could not succeed because no foreclosure of the property took place. Because the case was removed to federal court based on diversity jurisdiction, the district court applied the substantive laws of Texas in analyzing whether summary judgment was appropriate. Foster v. Deutsche Bank National Trust Company, No. 414 CB 436Y, 2016 WL 695658, at 2, ND Tex. February 22, 2016, citing Hyde v. Hoffman La Roche Inc., 511 F.3 D 506, 510, 5th Sir. 2007. Ordinarily Texas recognizes the following elements of a wrongful foreclosure claim: 1. a defect in the foreclosure sale proceedings, 2. a grossly inadequate selling price, and 3. a causal connection between the defect and the grossly inadequate selling price. Sacetave v. MacMorg Corp, 268 S.W.3d 135, 139 Tex. App. 2008. We have noted, in an unpublished opinion, however, that a party cannot state a viable claim for wrongful foreclosure if the party never lost possession of the property. James v. Wells Fargo Bank, N.A., 533 Fed.Ips. 444, 446, 5th Sir. 2013, citing Motton v. Chase Home Finn, 831 F. F.Sup.2d 988. 1007 08, SD text. 2011. Be a cause recovery is premised upon one's lack of possession of real property. Individuals never losing possession of the property cannot recover on a theory of wrongful foreclosure. As such, courts in Texas do not recognize an action 407 times 407 for attempted wrongful foreclosure. Because the foreclosure of Foster's property has not taken place, we agree with the District Court and find that Foster may not assert a cause of action for wrongful foreclosure. Moreover, because foreclosure of the property did not occur, we need not revisit the District Court's conclusions as to whether Foster has a viable notice of foreclosure cause of action under Section 51.002 of the Texas Property Code. 4. In sum, for the foregoing reasons, we affirm 1. In its order denying the remand motion, the district court also stated it would disregard Powers Joinder for purposes of determining jurisdiction. Foster v. Deutsche Bank National Trust Company, No. 414-CV-436-Y, 2014 WL-12591926, at 3, NDTex. August 22, 2014 Section 51.002B of the Texas Property Code sets forth the procedures for notice of a foreclosure sale. B. Except as provided by subsection, B1, notice of the sale, which must include a statement of the earliest time at which the sale will begin, must be given at least 21 days before the date of the sale by. 1. Posting at the courthouse door of each county in which the property is located a written notice designating the county in which the property will be sold. 2. Filing in the office of the county clerk of each county in which the property is located a copy of the notice posted under subdivision, 1, and 3. Serving written notice of the sale by certified mail on each debtor who, according to the records of the mortgage servicer of the debt, is obligated to pay the debt. Tex. Prop. Code Section 51.002B.